Welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm uh, I'm very excited about today's episode because you guys get to meet my dad today. Here's how all of this came about. Tony Gill hit me up a little bit after Mother's Day and was like, "Are you going to interview your mom for Mother's Day? Because I'd like to hear that podcast." I was like, "I I hadn't thought about that, but." I thought about interviewing my parents. I just hadn't thought about doing it for Mother's Day. And I said, you know, it's not a bad idea. He's like, you should really talk to your dad and interview your dad for Father's Day. And I said, okay. So I decided that I would reach out to my parents and see if I could set up a meeting with my dad, who's been retired for a little while. I was able to to get the meeting with him, but I thought I would put it out on Father's Day weekend and you guys can get to know him. He's led a really fascinating life. And Maggie Hendricks said to me, because my brother is a big time like house music legend and my parents are in who's who of education. And Maggie Hendricks was like, you're the least interesting person in your family. I'm like, that is accurate. That is completely accurate. And you'll find out why when it comes to my dad in, in this interview. There's a lot in here. Like we talk about things. We talk about his childhood. We talk about my grandfather, who I've discussed on the air before, who played in the Negro Leagues. But he was an interesting guy, too, and very different from my father. I really enjoy being around my dad. And one of the things, I don't know if he even knows this, and maybe he'll figure it out when when he listens back to the interview, One of the things I've liked about my dad as an adult, as me becoming an adult, is I don't have to talk around him. And I find that to be very valuable. Spending your life talking and talking to people. When you go visit your parents, you don't want to talk sometimes. And I've had plenty of opportunities with my dad to go into the house say hello, he'll ask me how I'm doing, I'll say I'm okay, and then he and I can sit on the couch and not talk because he gets me. Like, he's always been able to get me. So having that, having someone that there doesn't need to be much said for that person to understand where you're coming from is pretty great. He's been an unbelievable dad. By the way, I encourage you to interview your parents if you can. I had my students do this this past quarter. If the, I, the assignment wasn't for them to, in, to interview their parents, but the circumstances kind of left it so that their, their interview assignment this year, limited. they were limited on who they could talk to because they weren't seeing people in person and they were working really hard. And I'm... Super proud of my students this past quarter. They really stepped up. It's it's inspiring how much they stepped up. But a lot of them ended up interviewing their parents. And I think that it's a valuable tool. I think it's something that you'll want to hold on to. And if you can, pass it down. It's a cool type of time capsule. And you can learn some things about how you ended up where you were. And that's what we ended up doing in this episode. I also think it's pretty cool that the music that you hear for House of L, that's his grandson. My nephew created that. And it'll be the theme for House of L as long as I'm doing House of L. So you actually have three generations of Holmeses represented in this one episode of House of L. What you'll hear in the background of the interview uh, is... My mother is in the room. So she's almost acting as ombudsman on some of the stuff. And you can hear her reaction to things, which I think is great. She is going to get her own interview, which is going to be dynamite. I can't wait to sit down and talk with my mother. They are very different people. You'll get a sense of what my dad is all about. And then when I interview my mom, it's... It's pretty, it's, it's such a dramatic shift in how they present, but both of them have been incredible 
and incredibly effective teachers. And I talk with my dad about teaching and why he got into it, but there's so much beyond his teaching. He knows or knew a lot of famous people. And when I was a child, I didn't really realize this stuff on how he knew certain folks. So there's some stories in here that he tells. We also talk about his military service. And there was a a lot about that that I didn't know. His experience with the Vietnam War could have been its own podcast. But I thought I'd share and maybe hopefully it inspires you to talk with your dad or your dad-like figure this weekend. Interview them. Ask them questions. There's all this stuff that you can learn. So this is episode 114. My father, the author, historian, teacher, soldier, cab driver, grandfather, and great-grandfather, Warren W. Holmes. How are you, Lord? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. Speak up. No, he's fine. He's he's. I'm looking at his audio levels right now. That's fine as long as he stays okay. stays I'll there. You all to your business. You can you can be here too. I will. I'll be back and forth. Okay. Uh, so I have I have some questions for you if you're up for answering them. Okay, I'll try to be. Okay. I want to start with DuSabo. What made you decide that you wanted to study DuSabo? You know, I when I started the book on DuSabo, I was really going to write the book on Margaret Burrow. And she, and she said, well, uh, for some reason, she didn't really want to be interviewed. But she said, why don't you do do Sable instead? And so that's how that's really how I got involved in. But was there anything that was drawing you towards Dusable anyway? No, uh, only the fact that they had started the museum. You know, and I said, nobody knows anything about it. And uh when I talked to them about it, you know, they didn't really know much about Dusab, but they knew that he was a hero, you know, and I think that she and her husband, her husband's name was Charlie Burrow, they um, felt that he had been left out, as I mean, which is obvious, especially when I started doing the research on it. How could they leave out the founder of the city? And and that's how I really got involved in it. Were you friends with Margaret? Oh, yes. Yeah. How were you guys connected? Uh, friends with, with Margaret and Charlie. We had a uh, writer's group. And Margaret, I guess, really until... The day she died, said she was never really a member of the group. <laughs> the, that's Charlie's group, you know, and she always insists on that. I, I don't know why, but um, uh, they were they were members, or or at least Charlie was members of the group, and uh, uh, she would always come to the meeting. And she would always have a lot to say. <laughs> when you when you studied Dusabo, what was the most interesting thing that you didn't already know about him? Oh, there were a lot of things I didn't know. You know, uh, first of first of all, a lot of the stuff that I learned in studying Dusabo was about the history of Haiti. And um, there were things in that background that are really important today that we don't know anything about. Uh, uh, Toussaint L'Overture and stuff like that. There was a whole revolution 
going on that DuSable's father was um, very important in. Uh, they had a thing called uh, big whites and black and, and, and little whites. And DuSable's father was one of the little whites and they, they were always trying to get uh, concessions from the French government for their, you know, for their contributions to what was going on in Haiti. And that's what DuSable's father always fought for. But because he was on the wrong side of this revolution, uh, he had to get his son out of Haiti. And and that's how DuSable started his trip. His father uh, got him a boat and uh, they sailed to um, New Orleans. And that, that's where DuSable's story actually starts. Hmm. What, big whites and little whites. I don't know. What's the what's the difference between well, big, well, the whites big whites and little whites? The big whites controlled everything. Okay. You know, and and they were in charge of what was going on in in Haiti, but the little whites eventually joined up with Toussaint Louverture and actually won the revolution, and that was when it was time for Dusable to get his son out. Do you think that Chicago has done a good enough job? in recognizing DuSable? Not at all. Not at all. I was, you know, I was, how many people know where DuSable Harbor is and and what the uh, significance of DuSable Harbor? And that's where actually DuSable, when he finally reached here, settled. He didn't actually settle there. He landed there with his Indian guy and they they can only a lot of this stuff that goes on with DuSable has to do with war what they were trying to escape was being captured by Indians who controlled that part of Lake Michigan it's a strange thing that goes on uh, with the Lake Michigan connection. And that is that uh, nobody could stay there. Hmm. Nobody could stay there over 24 hours. It was, a, it was a staging area for war between these two Indian tribes. DuSable had to get out of there and they left, They, you know, before their 24 hours were up. The two of them left Lake Michigan and, and traveled on up to Michigan where uh, DuSable actually settled and actually where he, he was married. And th- that's what you asked me before about uh, Margaret Burroughs. She was interested in Potawatomi Indians, and DuSable married into that family. His wife was a princess. He met her while he was imprisoned in Upper Michigan, and that's where the story of, of his actually found in Chicago starts, because Chief Pontiac gave him the land, the one that I just told you they had to leave, gave him that plot of land, establishing peace between the two tribes, the the Potawatomi and the Oscala. As his prize for that, he was was given what we now know as Chicago. Hmm. How long did it take you to do the book? Because I remember you doing the book, but... From start to finish, till they put the cover on it, how long did it take? Ten years. Wow. 
at least 10 years, you know, because there really was a lot to discover in what was going, you know, but most of what, you know, what we're talking about now is background of that book. Cause see what I, what I wanted to write about was his involvement with the Potawatomi tribe. Cause that's what I was interviewing Margaret about. When I got into the story, I found a lot about him, and his story was much more compelling, at least to me. Now, the story goes beyond the time that he actually founded the city, and what because eventually, like I say, all of this stuff has to do with taking over land. And they eventually took the land away from Dusabo and the Potawatomis. That in itself took about 10 years for him to actually just give up. Eventually he gave up, gave the land back, or actually stole the land. There's a lot of American history in it too, because Dusabo was, was a good friend of George Washington. There's a lot of connection there. So I I was discovering all of these things. But eventually, Jefferson, uh, when he became president, took the land back. And DuSable moved to first to St. Louis. That's where he stayed. Was there, outside of when you were in the military, was there ever a, another city that you wanted to live in? No, you know, it's it's an issue. I heard you say the other day on your show that uh, about my military career, mm-hmm. I had a strange one because actually it really was strange because I was a protester against the war. I, I, I was not for the Vietnam War at all. And I found myself I eventually joined the army and the people who were most celebratory to me, I found in Texas, This, which I found very strange and ironic. But the people there, when I was in uniform, they were, they were great. You know, I, I really, uh, they were really good to me. I was trying to think of the city that I was going for, but there was a city between New Orleans and Texas. And I can't remember the name of it now, but they treated me very well. And the most fun I ever had was in a city called Lake Charles, Louisiana. When I, whenever I was in uniform, they treated me very well. My favorite restaurant in the world is in Lake Charles, although I've never been back there. What was what was the restaurant? I, I don't know the name of the restaurant. Do you remember what know. they served? Like, what was it about it that was that made it your favorite? Gumbo, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really good food, and but but it was the camaraderie, you know. Now, when I was when I was in the army, the people that I traveled with, they were soldiers from Wisconsin. We just had a great time. Now, what I didn't know at the time was there were a group of, in fact, most of the people in our unit were black soldiers from Chicago, and they were not having a good time. They're not having a good time at all, and I and but I rarely saw them. So you didn't see a lot of the other black soldiers. No, no, I didn't. That's weird. It it really is weird. You know, I I knew there were six of them, but they they did not have prize duties. See, one of the things that the, that I was I was lucky with being in the army is I had a bunch of skills that they needed. And so I always got to, you know, pick what I was going to do. 
But uh, the other soldiers, and I didn't find this out until much later, they were given duties that were not not good. You know, I mean, actually, you know, and, and this is one of the reasons why I was protesting the war in the first place, is they were being used as cannon fodder. You know, and they knew that when our when our time of training was up, they were going to be shipped immediately to Vietnam. During the Vietnam War, of course, I never went to Vietnam. Were you ever worried that you would end up going? Oh yeah, everybody worried that that, that we would we would be going, but I didn't go because because they needed my skills here. Most of the time, what I was doing was processing people's papers so they could go. Wow. Yeah. That That's how I spent my time in the war. That's got to be pretty heavy when you're looking at all the paperwork of, of sending young men to a place that they've never seen. Yes. And there used to be you know, ways that you could get out of going to war, going over there. And one of them was that if one of your your, uh, relatives was in the war area, you couldn't go. And what I would see that they were doing was they would go through the papers pick out the people who had relatives in the war area and send one. When that one got killed, they'd send the other one. That's how they Yeah, there was a lot of injustice during that war. So Lake Charles, you really like, but you never really thought about living anywhere other than Chicago? No, I never did. Never did think about living anywhere but in Chicago, yeah. Is there any reason for that? I really, I, I think Chicago's a wonderful city. I really, and I, and I always have. But the fact is that, well, I was born here and I didn't know anything else. <laughs> you know, I, I my travel was with the army. That's how I got to, you know, that's how I got to know anything about any any other part of the world. How long did your father live here? Was it his whole life or just his adult life? No, that's an, uh, my father told me on on his deathbed. He said, I, "There's so many things I wish I had told you." Now, this is what happened, and it took me many, many years to figure this out. All of the all of all of the members of his family left Chattanooga, Tennessee for some reason, and they never talked about why, never. In fact, when I, I asked my aunt when, when she was up in age, why did, why did you all leave? Because they, they, I mean, my father came here to Chicago. My aunt went to Washington. I had uh, two uncles that went to New York and one uncle that went to Detroit. I said, you know, why did everybody get dispersed like that? And her answer to me was, we don't talk about that. Wow. (laughs) Something very traumatic happened to me. Now, I mean, it happened to them in Chattanooga and I don't know what it was. Now, my grandmother started to tell me about it because you know just like you're interviewing me now i interviewed her i i guess over a period of weeks and she told me that there were a lot of reasons because my my grandmother was from atlanta and she said something happened to her brother and all of them left Atlanta. Now, this is about the same time. I guess around... Maybe like 1925 or something like that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
something happened in Atlanta and they all just left. She came here with her husband was a Pullman porter. And so, you know, he had a choice of cities that he wanted to live in. And he picked this one. This is where he, but he, but he never left here. He never went back to the South at all. That's so interesting because I imagine that there probably are other black families that have similar stories where, I mean, I mean, obviously the, the, the great migration to to the North, but I imagine there are probably some stories of some sort of trauma that happens and, and people just say, we're never coming back here. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's what happened. You know, I don't know what, because uh, my grandmother, you know, she didn't tell me what happened. Now, whatever happened, happened to her brother, but she never, she never defined it for me, you know, and, and she was really, you know, she was forthcoming in telling the story, but she never she never really finished that one. She said, if you really want to know what happened, she said, the root of our family is homes. And she wanted me to go and visit the homeses in Atlanta and talk to them because they knew this they knew the whole story. But of course I never I never even even met them. So so the story is lost to me. And I guess if my father had wanted to talk to me about it, he would have, but, but they were really tight-lipped about what, what had gone on with, with their family. I was pretty young when Papa died, so I have like a sketch like in my mind of the type of man that he was, but I don't really know what type of man he was? So what type of man was he? <laughs> he wouldn't tell you. I know. that That's part. Like, there's a mysterious, like, veneer. Like, even as a kid, he didn't talk much. No. No. I, uh, when he was in the Army, he served in Okinawa. And I didn't learn that until very late in his life, you know. He didn't talk about his war service or anything like that. Um, And that's the way he was. What was that like for you as a child? You know, it actually, uh, it it didn't matter much. Because, I mean, you, you just accept something like that as the way it was. Just like, uh, when you knew him, you know, uh, it was like that part of his life never existed. Mm. You know, I mean, you you never heard anything about it, did you? No. You know, but, but he did. But he played with you a lot. Yeah, I, 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 my first like real memory, my first like tangible memory is I can remember being in the driveway in Park Forest and you guys giving me a glove and playing catch with him with a tennis yeah. ball. I can re- yeah. I remember that. I must have been four or okay. five. Okay. And and I, I remember that fairly vividly. And I remember playing horseshoes in the backyard. Yeah. yeah. And I remember him teaching me about horseshoes in the backyard. So I remember him being, he was present. I just don't yeah. remember him sharing a lot. Well, that's interesting. He, evidently, he shared a lot more with you because you like to play horseshoes with him. You know? <laughs> and he, you know, I mean, that's something that he really loved. He loved playing horseshoes. And he loved playing baseball. I, I don't know whether I ever told you that uh, he, he was in uh, the Negro League. Yes, yes. That, that's why I've wanted his gloves. Yeah, well. How good was he? Evidently much better than I thought. 
Because, see, I wasn't into baseball. He was really into it. Uh, it was interesting that you became a catcher because that's what he was. But he didn't talk about that either. <laughs> you know, but but whenever his brother came to Chicago, they'd get out the horseshoes and they'd get out the baseball stuff and they'd play with that stuff. And he loved doing that. What do you remember about your mom? You know, the thing about my mother was I didn't, there are a lot of things that happened with her that I didn't know about. You mentioned that, you know, that I, I had lived in another city because because when my mother was alive, she went to Columbia University. So I had to move to New York and I, I guess I was about three years old and I lived there, but because she was studying, I didn't see her much. I, you know, I, I know you remember I'd say, mm -hmm. she took care of me all the time. But for some reason, uh, everyone loved my mother. And when I started acting up in school, they went, where did, where did you get that? Where did you get this from? You know? <laughs> that. But see, I didn't, I, that's one thing I didn't know that, that uh, almost all my teachers were my, went to school with my mother. And I didn't know that until, uh, until I got to high school and started acting right. <laughs> So do you think that's what what in, what inspired you to be a teacher? No. So what was it? You know, I don't know what it well. You think of Laura? Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody okay, everybody in my family was a teacher, actually. Your mother just reminded me of it. But yeah, Laura and Edgar were teachers. My mother, of course, was a teacher. What always caught me as strange was that these teachers that I didn't know, you know, I mean, I knew them. I knew them as my teachers, but they're always trying to put me on the right track. And I said, why are they taking interest in me? And I guess most of that had, had to do with, uh, with my mother. So you ended up teaching even though you had all of these didn't you drive a cab for a while too oh yeah i did i did a whole lot of things i, I be, because you know when i look back at it now like i said you know i was telling you when i was in the army i had a lot of skills that people needed and yes i drove a cab i took the census I did a whole, you know, a whole lot of things because I could do them. It didn't strike me as strange as it, it, what struck me was I needed to make money. Mm. I I just did these various things. What else did I do? I I don't know whether I told you, but I, I wound up staying in the army for six years. So I was in that. And all of these things, I guess, kept me afloat. You were kind of working in a bunch of different places, and all of it allowed for you to have enough money to build a family. That's right. So how do you then end up in a classroom? That's an interesting question. Well, one thing that I really liked was the study of Latin. And so I thought I would teach that. But it's an interesting thing because although uh, I was good at writing, I never wanted to teach English. And that's what I wound up teaching. Forever. Yeah, yeah. For, <laughs> and I, but again, because of the, I, I just fell into that and, and actually I was good at it. I thought that you told uh, you told me a story. 
I've, I find this a fascinating part of your journey as a teacher because your use of your fascination with the movie, the matrix is completely out of left field. Like it's just, it for it's, I love that you used it as a teaching tool. What, what, yeah. what was it about that movie that you thought you could connect with your students at the time? Well, you know, it was the students who told me about the matrix. I didn't know anything about that movie, but what I, one of the things, because I do like movies and stuff like that, I used to use many movies to teach things, you know, like My Fair Lady and stuff like that to teach English, you know, because I, I didn't want to get stuck in, you know, nouns, verbs, and that kind of, I, I didn't want to do the grammar of English. But what I would use was teach them uh, with movies. And they would, you know, they say, okay, well, why don't you teach us this? We want to know about this movie. And they got me involved in the Matrix. They know what's going on in this movie, and I don't. And I said, I, I better look at this movie very carefully because they're learning something from it that is really important to them. And and that's, that's how I got into The Matrix. And once I did get into it, its thread was so powerful that I kept pulling the string and finding different things that were going on with the matrix. Like the imagery and how like, it's very easy to draw a parallel between Morpheus and John the Baptist and Neo and Christ. Yeah. Yes. How did your students react to that? Like I said, they already knew that. (laughs) This is one thing about teaching, I guess is that I often learn many things from my students because it's easy to talk to them about stuff that they already know something about. And they like sharing with you uh, things that, you know, they're surprised you don't know about. And that's what was going on with that, with that matrix thing. That's great though. That like, I'm sure that their response to it was phenomenal because it's one thing that I find in classrooms too. Now when students can, when they, they feel like they're not always being lectured to Mm. Mm -hmm. their engagement level, I think is a little bit higher. So this was, this was a really difficult quarter for me to teach because I wasn't able to have that interaction with the students, like since everything was online, it was, it was really hard to connect with them. And I think that some trial and error now I'll have a better sense of it if we end up having to do more of it in the fall. But it's been my experience over the last, what have I been teaching now? Like nine years since I started teaching at Mm. DePaul. I enjoy when they're so engaged that, I can throw whatever lesson plan I had mm. for that particular day out because it just turns mm. into good conversation that they can then apply some of the stuff that we've been studying. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's an excellent thing. So you stayed with CPS for 37 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, I didn't have anywhere else to go. Well, I mean, it seemed as if you could have gone <laughs> to a lot of different places, but well, I I did because don't forget I had I had a whole bunch of jobs while I was still with them. I know, I remember. Yeah, but why was why was CPS home base for you? Well, you know what, it wasn't really the reason why I stayed with them so long was because I keep getting these classes of interesting students. And the last class that I had, I said, okay, I will not retire until you all graduate. 
they, they were that good. I mean, they really, they, they made my life a treasure just being, so I said, okay, I'm going to see you all graduate and then, then, uh, then I'll retire. And then their parents started coming, you know, they came up to me on graduation day, said, don't go. We want you to teach our other kids. <laughs> I said, no, I have to, I, this is it. So you, you'd already, you laid out this plan and you said, all right, here's my end game. This is a great group of kids. I want to be here for these group of kids. And then I'm done. That's right. <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> what did you find different in working with high school students at Washington versus college students at Chicago State? That's a good question. I, I've never thought of that. Because I, I, I'll tell you the reason that I ask, because I don't think okay. at this point I could work with a level lower than undergraduates. I don't know if I would have the patience to do it. So what was it that you saw like in in going from, you know, in the daytime you're working with kids over at Washington. At night you're working over at Chicago State. Is yeah. there is there a difference? I mean, I know that the gap of the students is 8 years or whatever it is on the on each of the each end of the spectrum. But was there anything in working with the college students that was as satisfying as working with the the high school students no you know with working with with the college students it was all about them getting a job they were to tell you the truth they were all scheming not to be worked to death you know <laughs> and and well, I was looking at them and said, okay, look, these are things you need to know if you're going to make your your life worthwhile. You know, and I, and I, I met a lot of people. For one thing, students at, at Chicago State were a lot older. They, they were more mature people. It, it was not just the the uh, the regular undergrads, the kids right out right. of high school. These were people that were continuing their education after yeah. working, yeah. And, and then they came yeah. back. Yeah, and I had one lady. I, I remember her now. She said, "You know what? I never would have had a job if you had." One of the things that I taught over there was how to write a resume. And uh, she was really impressed with that, learned it very well, used it for many years, just putting her resume together. She said, I never would have had these jobs if it hadn't been for you. Said, oh, yeah, really? Well, that's what you were supposed to be learning, you know, how, how to put your stuff together. She said, well, you know, we were just, we were just going there because... We wanted something to do. I imagine that it's very fulfilling when you have a student say that, though, that yeah, they picked yeah. up a practical skill. Yes, and and she really did, you know, and and that's interesting. Did you know Dr. Donda before you got to Chicago State? No, she came. Uh, actually, we came at the same time. I think we actually we interviewed together. Huh. You know. <laughs> yeah. Mhm. Mm so did you guys share an office cuz I feel like I went to your office once and she was either next door or you guys were in like a huge office and shared it. No. Let's see. I wow, I can't remember how that went now. But no, we we never shared an office. Okay. That campus uh, is is bizarre. I've always found it a strange place to navigate. In what way? Inside the buildings. Oh, yes, the way those buildings work is just weird. Like it's like, oh, well this is on the second floor, but there's also another second floor and then you have to like kind of I don't know, it just 
always weirded me out whenever I would go to Chicago State. Really? It, it wasn't very, it wasn't very user friendly. It no, was, it was no. You're right. Don't forget. I, I think I, I think I worked over there for 13 years, so it was very familiar to me. Yeah, I just remember like going in, uh, running around those staircases because the elevators were always super slow, but. It just seemed, just seemed. No, well, that was the thing. I always took the took the elevator, and that's a, you know that's one strange thing about Donda. She was trying to catch me in the elevator. This is when she was leaving and going to Hollywood. She tried to catch me in the elevator. She caught me when I got to the first floor. And she said, I wanted to tell you goodbye. I said, well, where are you going? She said, well, I'm going to Hollywood. And that's that's the last conversation I had with her. She said, I'll talk to you later. But we never did. And I imagine that her death probably hit you pretty hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because really, she was a wonderful person. And uh, so was her family. That family is very talented. And she used to give us a party at the end of the year, every year. And she'd play the piano and sing and do all this kind of, because she could do all that stuff, you know. And that's, that's the way she was. So when she, but she was never... You could tell she was never really happy with herself. And I think that's that's what killed her. Since we're talking about your famous friends, all of your famous friends that you have, <laughs> famous let's let's talk about Gwendolyn Brooks, because it, it it's probably the someone was trying to someone pointed out to me that even though I have the the radio show and the TV show that of four, I'm probably the least cool of the four people in the family. And I think that there's some, there's some accuracy to that considering that you are friend, you were friends with Gwendolyn Brooks. So how did you become friends with Gwendolyn Brooks? Again, it started with this writer's group and Gwendolyn was never, it, it, she, I mean, we, Gwendolyn and I didn't argue about whether she was a member of the group. All of the wives were really members of the group, except your mother. Uh, she didn't want to be in the group. <laughs> she still doesn't want to be in the group. Yeah, she said, no, exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> this, was, this was a group of men who their interest was writing. Gwendolyn's husband, he's an excellent writer. You know, but he would never finish a book. But he was a perfectionist. I, I mean, he, things were never over for him. Was they, they were never over. So finally, one day, Glenn said, you're doing this book. He had, he had, I still have the book. It's a book of poetry. She said, we're publishing this book, whether you want to or not. And... Uh, and and she published it. She published it over his protest. Wow. Yeah. There, there are some great poems in it. But the book that he was really writing was one that he never was going to finish because it was <laughs> it was never going to be right. But it was a novel, and it was going to be too long. Because he would have wanted to keep going mm -hmm. and going yeah. with it. You know, and I, I think with them, I think I think there was a competition between them that he never wanted to admit to. But, I mean, how would you like to be introduced as Mr. Brooks? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, everywhere you went. What do you think made Gwen a great writer? And what do you think makes a great writer? You know, the thing, 
for one thing, she knew him. I, I think she that he was an inspiration to her and everything. But of course, uh, the greatness in her preceded her knowing him. And I know one day, I, I guess it was, I was over at the University of Chicago and, you know, she just picked me out of the crowd and she said, uh, uh, Warren, what would you like to hear me read? And I told her, I said, we real cool. I, I, to me, I think that's her greatest point. But it's very short. She recited it. But what she was really interested in, then she, and what she told me then, that's so passe. <laughs> <laughs> because she was really, I think I told you this before, she was really interested in her later poem. And in fact, she and Haki Matabuti used to teach a class together where she did these, these later poems, and, and she was really interested in doing them and i i said you know what is what is what is it about these points but people now those are the ones that they that they um really uh hold on to and i'm gonna have to go through and and read them because she i mean she really she thought these later points were really great so what do you think in general makes for a great writer? What does a great writer have to do to capture your attention? I think telling a good story. And and that's why uh, I, I thought Henry, you know, but Henry was such a good writer, Gwendolyn's husband, because the story was never going to end, you know, <laughs> and you want, <laughs> and you wanted to get to the end of it. When I think of it, it, it is, to me, is being able to hold a narrative that just continues. That's why it took me so long to write the DuSable thing, because I could, I could see where this was going. You know, I was never going to end this thing because his story, you know, just kept going on and on, and there were always new facets to it. I I got uh, carried off into them, you know. So, what's the best part about being a grandfather and a great grandfather? <laughs> you know what? To tell you the truth, I ha I have a great wife. I've been very lucky, and so have you been to have her as your mother. I agree. And basically, yeah, and um, she's getting interviewed next. Oh, is she? Okay, yeah. Well, I, I I'd like to hear that story <laughs> <laughs> because basically, you know, she raised you all. You know, and and I, I, for whatever reason, I got the benefit of that. You know. So, what is it about Justin and and your great grandchildren that you enjoy? Because you light up when they're around. Well, they, one thing they're funny. <laughs> yeah, they're. You can see the future. Yeah, we can see the future in them. You know. You you want to talk, Ro? No, it's your interview. <laughs> your interview. So what she's telling you is that when she does her interview, that you're not going to be allowed to talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of potential, you know. And uh, uh, while we're we're on the subject. You know, it, it's great to see you grow into the man you've become. You know, I wish I could take credit for some of that, but I don't think so. I think that you get a lot of credit for it. I, 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 I feel like I'm a really good blend of you both. And that's and I didn't always feel that way. I think as I've gotten older, I, I recognize the 
facets of my personality that I think both of you have have brought to who I am. And that's good because I think that there are, are elements of my mother that have made me, I always go back to the idea of being brave. And that's something that she's, mm-hmm. she's drilled yeah. into my head since I was a child. So I, I look at that as part of what it is that makes me who I am. And I also think that the part that I get from you is a very pragmatic view of situations. And then I hopefully can combine mm-hmm. both of those things to, mm-hmm. to get the best outcome and trying to, I, I, I really do think that when I was younger, I felt like I was more you. And as I've gotten older, I think the balance has, has found like the pendulum has kind of swung and I'm back in the middle of the two of you. Okay. Which is good. And I, I think that it makes for a good balance and I, I work on, you know, there are times when I'm more like you in deciding things and there are times when I'm more like her, but having that balance is important to the person that I am and the person that I want to be. Okay. Well, it's, it's worked out. Thanks. It's worked well. And both of us are very proud of you. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Is it weird for you all to see me on TV and hear me on the radio? Because I feel yeah, a thrill every time. Yeah, but I mean, is this what you expected? Did you expect it? Or in your mind, was I a lawyer? Was I, you know, someone in the military? Like when when you were watching me grow up, did you think that I would end up in entertainment? No. No. <laughs> if you would have drawn it out for me, what would you have drawn out for me? I don't think that I would have, you know, but I, but yeah, we did think that you were going to be a lawyer, but that's, you know, your tenaciousness of spirit, you know, is, you know, oh, that, that's something. Cause that, that's, I was going to do that too. You asked me how I got drawn into teaching. I don't know. But something happened to me. I was baptized by a lawyer. Didn't find out what a great lawyer he was. His name was Archibald Carey. Didn't didn't find out till I was was writing to his friend for for a letter of recommendation to somewhere. I don't know where I wanted to go. But then I, I found out I'm writing to the wrong person. I find there are a lot of things that I found out many years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gwen Chapel seems to be a place that you uh you have a lot of affection for. Oh yeah. Why is that? Well, I okay. Well, everything that that happened to me in my younger life happened in Quinn Chapel. Like I said, well, he he was um, the lawyer I was telling you about was the uh, uh, minister there at Quinn Chapel. Yeah, I just looked him up while we were talking, Archibald Carey Jr. That's right. His father was a bishop, and he he was he was one of uh, the one of the founders of the church. You probably know a lot more about it than I do if you, if you just looked it up. But that church is really very historic, and I didn't know that it was, you know. But I I knew that my grandmother would take me down there every Sunday. Couldn't miss going down there. Um, uh, n- my mother was buried from there. Uh, a-, a lot of things just happened to me there. Like I said, I used to go to, uh, well, I went to Sunday school there went, and then went to church there. And then after church was over, 
walked down the street from there, and that was down the street on Michigan Avenue was, I think, I don't know, I think it was the NAACP. And I find out things there. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that I have forgotten of, about it, but there were a lot of things that rooted me to it. And it, it, its history is pretty great. Like there's the underground yeah. railroad aspect of Quinn Chapel. There's there's a lot of stuff that that yeah. place. It, it's it's a historic place, and I'm glad to see that it's still been kept up very well. Like even now, as well, I don't know, has it been kept up very well? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those. It's it's it kind of punctuates the end of the South Loop. And so I, I see it pretty often and it's been doing renovations and it's, oh, a, really? yeah, it's a staple of the community still. It really is. And, and I think it's historic nature has allowed people to continue to make sure that it doesn't go anywhere. Okay, good. Good. I didn't know that. Yep. So this was great. Okay. I had a lot of fun. Is there anything else that you want to say? Or is there, is there, I mean, there's clearly a bunch of different subjects that I could then go to, but is there, well, wait, let me get serious for a second. How worried are you for the Republic? Oh, Oh, I don't think we need to get serious. (laughs) He scared me last, he scared me last week because I actually, thought he was going to call in the military and yeah that's scary that's what worries me what worries me also yeah. is the the equality of brutality that we're now seeing that yeah. while the protest started out with the death of a black man from the police mm-hmm. we are now seeing our white brothers and sisters take a beating in, yeah. in the streets, in the protests. And I never thought that we would go back to a place where I, I, I didn't think that we would see where white women were just openly being shot at by police yeah. and being hit with batons. And, yeah. and if, if we've crossed that red line, I'm very scared about what happens next. Well, did you see what happened this morning where they, they knocked this old white man down in the street and then lied about it? Yeah, I was watching it live on Twitter. It was very upsetting. Yeah. I, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I hope we get rescued soon. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Well, thanks, Pop. I appreciate this. Well, thanks for thanks for oh, I wanted to say I I, I didn't know any I, I I didn't know about the underground railroad thing, so one day maybe you can talk to me about that. Yes, because I I didn't know about that part. I'll go find some of the markers and I'll send you the pictures. Okay, but this was this was delightful. I'm glad that you were I, you could fit me into your busy schedule. well thanks for thanks for talking to me today well this was a quite a treat it's a a good birthday treat for me yeah okay goodbye lauren all right you guys have a wonderful rest of your day mother you're next up on this hey i'm i'm up for it i'm gonna do it so that's my dad isn't he great it was a lot of fun to talk to him and it was a lot of fun to learn more about my family, like the home side of my family. I knew a lot about the Chattanooga and there's stuff like, you know, the homes tow trucking people, I think we're related. And I think that there are white homeses and black homeses in Chattanooga and you know how that goes in families in the South in the early 20th century. They were probably connected by slave holders. So it can be uncomfortable. Anyway, 
I enjoy talking with my dad and learning more about his philosophy on teaching. And I can tell you, there are a lot of students, because I ended up coaching at Washington while my, like towards the end of my dad's teaching career. I coached over there for two years and three years. And those students loved my dad. And it's hard. Like anyone who meets him for the most part has the same, has the same reaction. Every single one of my girlfriends from the time that I was bringing girls home. They like my dad more than they like me in a, in a lot of cases. And the, the worth that he always gets is adorable. Your dad is adorable. I could listen to your dad tell stories forever. Like that sort of thing. He has that effect on people. He is adorable. So I'm glad that he, he was able to, to do this and this was a lot of fun for me. I wanted to finish this. By reading the poem that he was talking about. We Real Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks. Who's one of my favorites. And it's weird. Because even before I really knew that she knew my dad. She was one of my favorites. But when you're the poet laureate of Illinois. You know. I'm I'm not alone in Gwendolyn Brooks being a favorite. I think a lot of people have her very high on the list so this is our poem and this is how in today's pot we real cool by gwendolyn brooks the pool players seven at the golden shovel we real cool we left school we lurk late we strike straight we sing sin we thin gin we jazz june we die soon thanks for listening to the pod Go interview your parents.